The Map Room, a business owner's guide to the art of harnessing choice. The podcast that explores the world of business through the decisions owners face and the choices they create. Join the conversation with Paul Barnes and Stuart Brown as they walk through some of the toughest decisions you have to make while leading a business and how understanding the choices can be used to guide strategy and optimize outcomes. Brought to you by Map and a host of special guests. Well, here we are again in the familiar surroundings of the Map Room. But today, our format is going to be less than familiar, if you're a returning listener. Because uh, today, we're really going to sit and review where we are, uh, talk about where we started this podcast and this journey, uh, where we think we've got to um, nearly a year later, and maybe give a little preview about what's coming up in the second series. So I'm delighted to say that coming back into the map room after a too long an absence is uh, the man who started this journey with me and was sat in our very first uh, session talking about what we wanted to achieve in this uh, podcast, which is Paul Barnes, who is the founder and MD of MAP. Paul, morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Stuart. I'm very well. Uh, thank you for having me back, obviously. Um, as you say, can't believe it's been 12 months, 13 episodes. And here we are reflecting back on the first series of our podcast. Um, Mapper in our 10th year now in business. The podcast was something that was on the radar for a very long time. Partly requests from clients and partly requests from our team and just a desire from me. But it took your media magic to come along to, to bring <laughs> it all to life. So I'm very, very grateful that you've you've made this happen and stuck through the journey. I think I read a stat that something like 95% of podcasts don't make it past episode three. So I think we're um, we're one of the official dinosaurs now. Um, when we set out to do this, it was really about added value for our clients. There's so much that goes on in professional services world and so many different stories that we've got and that we've been very privileged to be a part of with our clients. And the podcast really gave us a platform to be able to share those stories with a wider audience on the hope that it would help more people and for me this has really been about lifting the bonnet you know there's lots of press releases about success stories and outcomes and it's easy to look at them and be envious and think how lucky those people are and how glamorous it all looks but what I wanted us to take the time to do is actually lift the bonnet on those stories and speak to those people and get a true sense of of, of all the work that actually goes on behind the scenes with all the people involved in those journeys and I'm delighted that the guests that we've got along the way, I think, have all been very humble, very honest people and very reflective as well. We've not had people coming on promoting their services and talking even that much about the future. It's taking the time to actually allow them to have a platform to reflect and for us to understand the warts and all of, of their stories. So I'm really pleased. I think it's been a, a big success and hopefully we can spend some time reflecting today ourselves on the, the, the themes and the the, the things that we've learned from these uh, 13 episodes. I think what you say there about guests is is the key. Um, you know, we've been uh, we've been really fortunate with the guests we've had. I think part of that is uh, I'm going to call out um, one you know one of the map values, which is caring. I think we've had guests who care enough to share their stories. We said that you know when we spoke about this and the concept of the map room and the concept of you know, setting your strategy out, you know, bringing it back to a series of objectives of which you'd measure your progress back on a map. And that was the analogy we used. Um, and as you say, you know, lots of people talk about the glory and, uh, you know, go back to, you know, something like uh, I will do my usual military piece here, talk about D-Day, and everyone remembers all the things, generals that did things, and people don't mainly understand all the planning and all the thing that went in there and all the massive support um, that goes in. So, you know, I think it's a valuable part to do that. Uh, I think that I've been genuinely, uh, I'm going to say, grateful for the time that every guest's given us. But I also think the honesty, I, I, and I know there's a, and I'm just going to say this is a phrase about vulnerability, and I, and I don't mean it for that reason, but I've been astounded by just how open and honest people are. And I, and I think there is a, there's a genuine wish, and we're fortunate with so many clients that, you know, they want to share their story so they can help others. You know, whether it was someone like Karen talking about starting a business to help others or when someone's got part of the journey, they're now happy to help others. I think it's been um, fascinating. I mean, we, again, we said we didn't want theorists. We said we wanted people who 
you know, had the battle scars again, back to the analogy. And it was fascinating when I was literally driving in this morning, I was thinking about the fact that actually, not by plan, but by circumstance, um, we actually ended up with every guest coming in were actually founders who created and built their business, you know, some of whom have actually joined their time with us and exited their business. Um, others have gained investment to grow their business further. And it made me realise, I've been really fortunate that you spoke about a journey when we first started this, that we've actually got people who have genuinely lived that entrepreneur's journey. And as I say, that was more by uh, luck than judgment or planning, but grateful for everybody who's taken the time to come in and talk to us. Great. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the journey is something that we are both, I think, equally passionate about. And it's that idea of not only focusing on the outcome, as important as having objectives are to actually enjoy the journey because we've had lots of people reflecting back on the stories and talking about regrets and successes and things they wish they'd done differently. And we, you know, part of our role and I think part of the, the what MAP do and this podcast does is, is to try and help people to be intentional about how they're showing up day to day and make sure that they're doing something that, that means something to them and it's not just a means to an end. And um, no one, I don't think, presents this better that I've come across than Daniel Priestley, who we were delighted to get on at one of the episodes. And Daniel talks about the entrepreneur's journey. And it really resonated with me. And I think it really resonates with a lot of people. So if you've not seen Daniel's graphic on the entrepreneur's journey or, or read any of the content around it, have a little look. Because I think it gives a real language to what we're talking about, this idea of having an intentional business and deciding what sacrifices you're going to make and he talks about the, the the two types of business strategies, if you like. One is the lifestyle boutique and one is the high-performing scale business. And there's not one right or wrong answer because we're all complex individuals with different goals and ambitions. But there's arguably more sacrifice in, in building a, a scale company. So you need to think long and hard about whether you're ready to make those sacrifices where you are in your life, where you are in your career. Um, but there's nothing wrong with with running a really tight uh, boutique that also makes equally a difference for you and your family and your team and, and the people that you serve. So it was great getting Daniel to open up about that. Um, and I think that really sets the scene for what we're going to talk about today, which is those that have been through that journey. Some of them have crossed the desert into the high performing scale and some of them have, have built a really good boutique, but they've all got different insights and stories to share that you know, along the way, and hopefully that can be of help to the people that are listening. You mentioned it. What's the ambition? Do you want a lifestyle business or a performance yeah. business? This should <clears throat> this should be obvious to you. Um, a, a lifestyle business is a business that's built around fun, freedom, and flexibility. It's built around your own personal balanced portfolio of needs. If you've got a family, you're going to incorporate your family um, uh, goals into your lifestyle business. Uh, if you've got, um, you know, a dream to live part-time in a sunny location and part-time going to the snow, you're going to take all of that into consideration. And you're also going to try and avoid things like taking on debt and obligations mm. and boards of directors. And you're going to try and avoid uh, selling time for money. You're going to try and avoid pinning yourself to a particular location. Yeah. So these are all the attributes of a lifestyle business. It's a new breed of business. It's something that really began to... Um, bubble up in the early 2000s and has taken really um, a full identity in 2020s. So a lifestyle business is a perfectly valid choice. In fact, it's a, it's probably the best mm. choice. And then a performance business is something that is going to get big and valuable. Um, you're going to make sacrifices in your personal life to, to get performance. And you're going to probably have to take on either debt or a funding partner um, in order to get it big and valuable, which means you're going to have obligation, you're going to have um, you're going to have to have greater levels of discipline. Um, with a bigger business comes a bigger leadership team and management team, which is a really costly overhead. So you're going to have to have a bigger business, um, maybe 50 to 150 people in the team. So there's all of those considerations. So the first thing is ambition. Do you want a lifestyle or a performance business? Really interesting that. I mean, again, and, and you know, we see this clearly with clients that we work with, those for whom our job is to help them maximise their, I'm going to say lifestyle, but their lifestyle business and maximise their 
earnings from that. And there are those other clients for whom really the the value of working with MAP is to help them achieve that scaling and help that growth. And, and as you said, maybe to get them across that desert. But there's, there's two things from the conversations thinking about the concept of startup that I wanted to really just put on the table was we had, uh, I'm gonna, and I, I said this at the time, gonna, we're going to stay in the Southern Hemisphere. Amanda Walls from Cedarwood, she spoke about the fact that actually she chose the lifestyle business because of her experience of working in what was trying to be a high growth business and what she called about the pain of growth. So it was really interesting that she then took the thing to say, I've seen this, I don't wish to replicate it, therefore I am intentionally making a decision to do something different. That was one side of it. And the one that really threw me about the concept of startup, because I think I've always been guilty of thinking that, you know, we talk about lots of clients start up because the business or the agency is a vehicle to bill a craft. And we're probably guilty of, you know, telling people they need a plan and all the rest of it, when actually the one that threw me was Karen Rayburn, and it was about the reality of her situation. And she said, she sat here and explained that um, her uh, situation, her health situation, put her in a place where she had to do it for herself. Um, the same was true with uh, Paul McGee when we he spoke from um, the sumo guy that they were both suffering from ME and that both created a situation where nobody would employ them so they had to employ themselves. I started it remotely to serve myself and where I was at that stage in my life. So first, I didn't intend to set out to where I am now with a creative agency of 20 people and we have a whole management team and, and it's still all remote. But I didn't, as often happens, I didn't know what I was starting. I just wanted to help accountants with their marketing. And I launched off to do that. But at the time, I was fairly significantly feeling the challenges of having ME, which is also known as chronic fatigue. And so I had health reasons that meant that every item of energy was precious. So I had to budget my energy the same way I budgeted time or money or food or anything else that we budget out for. And the extra time and money to have an office and to go there and to like there were mornings in those early days when it was very severe where taking a shower was about as much as wow. I could have the energy to do. We then spoke to John Woodall and you asked a really good question about what sleep, you know, what, what did you lose sleep over in the early days of the business? And, and he actually said not a lot. He basically saw it that he was there to educate himself initially. And I think this is really important because as much as we talk about having a goal and having a plan, the reality is, as John said, a lot of these businesses, you fall into them accidentally. So you don't, it's very hard to have a plan from the outset. You're really finding your feet a little bit. And John was very honest about the fact that Space 48, like a previous business that he had been involved in, was opportunistic in terms of where a tech platform was going at the time. They were very much partners with Magento and they jumped on that tailwind of, of Magento and, and partnering with them. And John was very honest about he was finding his way. He was looking at where the opportunities are, looking at what game he wanted to play, if you like, and what game he didn't want to be part of. Um, he was very interested in business, not just the craft. And um, he spent those early days trying to work out the, the, the type of business and the size of business that, that, that he, he wanted. And he always explains to me that it's he always sees it as like the next step. What's the next step to push myself once he's achieved that, what's what's next? So that that was a fascinating insight into how John sees it and how he was intentional about the the type of business that he wanted, but it did, wasn't necessarily there from the start. It sort of evolved over time. I didn't lose sleep over much, to be honest with you. I think, um, like if you st if you start from nowhere, then any then any step forward you take is is an improvement. So so your expectations are, are low. But I guess your dreams and ambitions are, are bigger. I don't really know what I was trying to achieve at that point. And I'm not certainly not trying to say on this podcast today that, you know, oh look what I've done. It's you know, something that anyone else can't do. I think it's I think it's perfectly possible for anyone to do it given the right let's just say the right circumstances to to be presented to you. So um 
the the early challenges were you know just just um learning about business really just just sort of failing forward consistently and just just finding okay well how i've not i've not solved this problem before and it might be you know it could be more obvious that it's something that's craft related and how do we do this thing with a given technology like magento or whatever we're working with or how do we solve this digital piece for this customer or how do we win this customer you know what do we need to do to pitch this customer what processes do we need to put in place to to make that work what what works what doesn't work what do we need to do in terms of uh, our accountants what do we need to do in terms of legal support what do we need to do in terms of hr how do we hire someone if you've never hired someone before you know what happens first is you just get people to work for you that you know yeah you know it sort of starts there doesn't it really and but you go through a you know um that that sort of journey that you have to go on and i think that's that's from again not that i've got all the experience in the world but what i do appreciate and respect more now is the experience that you get for doing something for a long time and time served just matters because it does as i say what really stood out there for me with john was that he wasn't somebody that was baggaged by his craft if you like his thing was about being it's, it's not necessarily he's very very humble and he's not talking about he was skilled in business but he was passionate about business and he was intrigued about business so whereas the craftsperson and the boutique business might find hr and processes and other things to be mundane or getting in the way john was actually in a way addicted to those things and he was he, he was a nerd in in that sense that he wanted to learn about those things and he wanted to better himself so i thought that was really interesting i'd, I'd call out another map value there paul which is about being brave you know at the time yes john was saying that he was part of his you know, he, he still today has this obsession about learning. But I think that's also about the bravery. I think, you know, we're all guilty sometimes of not doing the things we don't fully understand. And if we look at the success of where he's taken that business, I think a big foundation of that is being brave. Mm. He enjoys a problem. He doesn't see it as, I'm running a mile because there's a problem here. I want to focus on the exciting things. He, he's excited about a problem as he is an opportunity. Well, like you, he's a United fan. He can't help it. <laughs> Loads of problems. And then Adam talked about, this idea of asking good questions of business owners and you sort of challenge that as to are they ready to speak to financial planner at that point how do they actually work out what what it is that they want we had a good discussion or you had a good discussion about what you want is sometimes different from what you need and i think this is really really important as well and it's, it's about having that support network around you whether it's a financial planner whether it's a, an accountant whether it's a business coach advisor whoever it is having somebody to actually who really genuinely cares about you and what you're trying to achieve but don't take it on face value because sometimes what a business owner says they want is not really what they want it's what the mates achieved or what they've been told because they've read a textbook or or whatever so taking the time to actually work out what they really want and usually that can't be done in you know one question or one meeting um to work with people you can tell genuinely care about you and, and, and what matters to you because you probably need somebody to tease that out of you and um adam's obviously fantastic at doing that something he's really passionate about i think one of the reasons that this is really resonates with myself paul is you know i, I did what you just said there is i had let's just say an ambition list i had ticks in boxes and was guilty of you know seeing what others had done and saw the outcome as the this is the result i have done this and i've said openly and honestly before um, when i sold my sort of first business and my first you know let's say life-changing business we get my point is that i ended up feeling very confused afterwards and it was because i hadn't taken that time to really understand what do i actually need as you said there what i thought i needed and what i thought sorry what i wanted wasn't necessarily what i needed and that's where this input and as and don't make my mistake don't do it later do it at the very outset or do it as quickly as you can so how do you know let's go back to the concept of the map how do you know you're on the right trajectory how do you know you're on the right pathway to what you want because success is only what you want it to be not what someone else thinks it should be i actually think you can tell that quite quickly when you're speaking to an advisor because if they're using a language or an approach of this is how to sell your business or this is what you need to do and they're trying to tell you what to do rather than asking questions then well unless you know that's what you want to do then run a mile and work with someone who's actually going to take the time to understand you and they're not just trying to copy and paste what they've done with other people the starting point with this as always is the goals so it's how do you want to live 
So once we know how somebody wants to live, we can put a, a cost on that. So depending on how old they are, how long we expect them to live, we say that my ideal lifestyle looks like this. So that's the process of mapping that over, over time. We use sophisticated software to, to build this out to say, once this number is realized, how long is that going to last for? Am I going to run out of money? So it's, it's a fancy version of an Excel spreadsheet. Yep. That's all it is. But it, it's it, like it, a personal cash flow type idea. Exactly. And, and you can work out how much somebody needs based on how they want to live. And that's, that's the key with it, is to understand what an ideal retirement looks like, if it is retirement, um, and how much that's going to cost. So again, that's, you know, for me sitting there at the start of a plan and saying, you know, am I really sure where I want to get to? How do I know I'm on that journey? And a little bit going back to what you said at the start, but how do I make sure I enjoy that journey? Because we've seen, we know too many people and we've seen too many uh, clients who I'm going to say maybe put all the eggs in one basket and therefore the exit, which I'm sure we'll talk about later if we're talking about the entrepreneur's journey, is the be all and end all. Uh, and as you rightly said, it's about enjoying that journey, but also enjoying that journey, not just for yourself and fulfillment, but you know, creating wealth where possible and using the best advice from the accountant and those around you to extract that value because it's all about supporting your family and don't get to the point where, you know, I've been and others have been where you suddenly turn around and you go, where did the last 10 years go? And I know you're a big, big advocate of that, Paul. Um, one thing that I wanted to sort of just raise there was when we go on this, and, and, and again, I'm going to come back to Daniel really, as you let's just say it and it doesn't really matter i don't believe it matters whether you're sitting here now and saying okay i've made a choice i'm going to do the uh, cedarwood route I, I know what i want i'm only going to go for the 12 people um i'm not going to go past that or you then get into the scaling um freight um, phase and go higher that daniel spoke uh, about the fact of a culture clash and you know, you when you you start your business, and on, as John just said there, sometimes your first employees are families and friends, and which is always dangerous. Um, you know, and obviously we are now getting to a point. You said it there, where you know, in the next week or two, we're going to be celebrating ten years of Map. You know, I first obviously got involved with Map as a client, and the people that I worked with then are very different to the people that I work with now. So you've gone through that, and you've had to live that. I'm going to use the word iteration. I can't think of a better word at the minute, Paul, but you've gone through that culture of the clash of the people that were with you at the start uh, and then the people that you need now. And again, I've always said in the past, you know, your startup team has to be different to your scale-up team. doesn't mean they can't be a combination of two, but the culture that you need is differently. I think it would be fascinating for you to give your own point on that now. You are, or, you know, reflect back on your own 10 years and where's that culture clash come in at MAP and what have you done to address that? I think iterating is the right word and it's not, as you talk about, consequential and intentional. Sometimes the iterating is consequential. You've not actually decided right now we need to iterate, but you've maybe lost some people or different people have come in. You're getting different feedback from clients and you're having to respond and iterate as a, as a result. In the early days, a lot of it is about, it's always about personality. But in the early days, it's people who are ready to, comfortable with change, comfortable with imperfection comfortable with you know trying to move at speed because you're trying to get something off the ground you sort of can't hang about there's so much change you're changing your proposition you're changing your brand you're changing so many things because there's so many unknowns as i said before because you've ended up with this business and you probably cottoned onto something and you're growing quick and you're working it working things out as you go map now is is a very different beast so it's actually really not about change anymore and we've we've worked hard over a 10-year period as you would hope to build a lot of processes and so it's actually more about conforming than it is change now we have our way of doing things and we're happy for people to challenge on that way of doing things but in the main it is following a process that's been built of lots of hard work and lots of thinking over the years so people that enjoy following process and that isn't for some people because some people prefer the startup mentality of move fast and break things mm. and doing things the, their own way. And so we've had casualties from that perspective along the way. But most of the time, I would say you could see it coming to the point we've actually said, look, we actually think you would be better in a fast startup or mm. even running a business on your own because 
we've got a sizable team now and you're accountable to other people. And for some people, love that. They love developing other people. They love taking responsibility for other people. And some see it as a real grind and they're being let down by other people who are not as good at the job as, as them. So if you fall in that latter, latter category, then somewhere like MapNow is, is not going to work for you. Um, and we've actually we, we've actually had clients say, you know, such and such a person was, was really good and really hands-on in the early days. And so it's it's not easy, but that person who might have been good for them in the early days wouldn't be good for MAP now and the way that we operate and the way that we work. So, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a gradual thing, and it's it's trying to be reflective, trying not to react too emotionally. I still find it hard when we go through change and, and we lose people, but I've sort of come to terms with it's okay to grieve for a little bit, but then you've got to get back on the horse and think of what you've learned from that situation and what you need to do to improve things going forward and how you take that setback as a as an opportunity to maybe iterate as you say you you've said there um process and I, and I, and i think um ironically when one thing john woodall spoke about was actually it, it, he didn't think process particularly mattered it was all about what you said of you know it's about trying something just getting on with it and learning as you go as you go along but i'm going to bring process back to a maybe different word I think there's a there's a thing here about the concept of niche and the concept of focus. So you were very intentional about the audience of MAP, and that was digital agencies. And we've been true to that, and, and um, we, are, we are still absolutely uh, in that space. So the niche bit was has been there from day one. That's, that's without a question. The bit that I'm really sort of questioning then is the, what you call now the process and let's just say the the map methodology and I, I can see a difference from being a client at that time to being involved now and seeing the kind of people we've got and the things that do every day is that the process has become the methodology it's a mix of the values of the people and it's also about what they do and you know we're in a business where if we put it onto our clients business we're in a, we're in a retained model business essentially because um, clients pay us each month to do certain amounts of accountancy, et cetera, et cetera, whatever their their needs are. Um, and we mentioned the fact that you said it there about you know a client at the start. So this person was great at this part, but I've seen a I've seen a, a change, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word investment because and I know it's been an investment, but an investment in client service. Um, and it was really interesting that when we spoke with again um, Amanda Walls at Cedarwood, that she came out with this. Uh, one of her measurements of, of getting the lifestyle business she wanted was having this value of strong client service. I think that's well worth a reflection. So in line with the whole, you know, map room meaning and, and your thing about Battlefield, my view is that although we talk about enjoying the journey, you're going to have bad days, you're going to have difficult days. So at least make sure that you're on a battlefield that you want to be, fighting for the people and the cause that, that you want to be, because otherwise those bad days are going to be horrific if you're fighting a cause that you don't even believe in. And so I'm a big advocate of making everything as easy as it possibly can be. So we just said once, I talk about us being one-trick ponies now, one software, pretty much one industry, it's monthly recurring revenue, and then it means that we waste less time and energy over having to rethink about those things all the time. Um, and obviously with recurring revenue, the same thing. So we, we, we don't spend much time worrying about what next month or the month after looks like. It's there. We've got a, a core base to work with. And that means we can invest more time in the clients, in the client relationships, in the team, because those things are just sort of decision made. And I think that's a big thing about strategy. It's all the things you're not going to do as well as the things that you are. And we're always getting asked and always getting opportunities to try different software, different industries different projects and different things that are, are out of sync with what we're about and they just become a distraction i'm going to uh, challenge you on one thing there paul and it's always got me this one the phrase one trick pony it brings it down i'm going to bring it back to and i'm going to say we're not a pony we're a thoroughbred so the most valuable and expensive equine resource on the planet is the thoroughbred racehorse 
and that's all they do. They come out of the thing and they run as fast as they can and the one who finishes first wins. So we seem to talk about a one-trick pony as a negative thing when actually if you look at the uh, you know the best-trained racehorses in the world, they are brilliant at doing one thing. So I'd like to think the map, map is a thoroughbred rather than a pony on that one. That's very nice. Thank you. That's, that's a much better term. And then the, the other thing that I would say is there's also a difference between being decisive and being deluded. So we talked about relationship owners from day one having the time and space to be able to invest heavily in client relationships and spend real meaningful time with those clients and not be spending all their time doing accounts and fact returns. Yeah. But as a small startup business, like you said before, you need people that are actually ready to do both and switch between because you don't have a big team. Today, it's very different. We have 30 people. We have people doing accounts, people doing tax, people doing bookkeeping, people doing payroll, and then the relationship owners spend most of their time delivering that service to clients. But we have to remember that some of those people, five, ten years ago, they were doing all of that themselves. So it's, it, you have to be honest about where you are. There's no point in bringing employees in and telling, selling them a dream yeah. that you can't deliver yet. Now we can tell them, well, you're going to have all these resources available. But guess what? Even still, there's going to be times when you're going to have to get your hands dirty. So I've also learned not to oversell the proposition, either to the clients or the employees, and be truthful about the pros and cons of, of working with us as a client or an employee. And if you don't do that at the outset, you're only going to lead to more pain further down the line. So I obviously, I still have a, a job to promote MAP in the best light, but you also need to caveat that with the things that they might not like, and that saves you so much pain further down the line. And that's come from battle scars. You know, that's come from yeah. losing clients or losing employees because we weren't as honest with them from the outset as we could be. And I, th I think shaking off that desperation over time when you come out of startup mentality is really key. I think this is an ideal point to move on to people. Um, you know, again, uh, whether we take Daniel's literal, you know, 12 people, you just said now maps, maps at 30 people. Um, I, I think it's important to recognise that, you know, everybody who's been and talked to us has a story about themselves and, and, and their people. Uh, and you mentioned their uh, personality. We have, we've been really fortunate this last series that we had two business psychologists on, Hannah Johnson and Leanne Elliott. And one of the things that I think is worth it reflect is one of the questions I asked Hannah was, how do you recognise personality types within your team? With regards to understanding the personality types, we've got lots of different ways we can do that, haven't we? We can sit there with someone and have an interview with them and we can deduce from that that they are a certain type of person. But for me, I feel like if I was to recruit someone into a team without doing a psychometric on them, I would be just be completely blind to what they're really like. And so for me, psychometrics are a huge part of how you understand more about those personality types. And you've got to find one that, that, that works for your business because everyone's different. I've got clients who use more motivation-based psychometrics to understand the personality preferences of people in their team. You know, what what's under the surface? Not what do I just see them behave like every single day, but actually what drives them? Some people are more interested in that and some people are more interested in you know, what, what behaviours do I get day to day? How do they lead? How do they communicate? How do they build relationships? What's their thinking style? And so I think that you're absolutely right. What you have to make sure is that you've got that diversity and diversity in thinking style, diversity in relationship building style, all of these different things are, are absolutely crucial to be able to have a team that is functioning to the best of its ability. So that's about the people. And, and as you said, you've lived through it, Paul, and you used the phrase casualties, but it's also about sometimes there's a phrase that we often use, which is the business outgrows the person, but it can also be the other way around, particularly in startups, you say that the things people need. And if you're going to go through this journey and, and have people then who can help you, I'm going to use your phrase, adopt the process better. That's different personality. So I think personality and understanding personality traits is key. And there's lots of um, ways you can do that. But I also think it's important to bring it back to the essence of your culture because you can sit there and say, 
we need different personalities. And, and I have said previously in episodes of this that I spent too long in my career believing that the team around me needs to be like me when actually my greatest successes have come from being um, surrounded by people who were not like me and diversity in, in all its aspects created better outcomes for the business and uh, and for myself and everyone involved. So I think the essence of culture is really important and one of the things that I'd like to also reflect back on is when Hannah when I asked Hannah about the risk of a cultural misfit and I think that's worth us taking a second to hear again. For me recruitment is essential at the moment I think that we've got to be careful that we don't just make a quick decision because we have a smaller pool available to us and then that person ends up being the detriment to the culture and I'm not saying that they're going to come and be a narcissistic you know um sociopath but even just small little things can you know that, that just aren't quite the right fit for the culture they that could be a lovely person but it doesn't quite fit and and actually you know when you're dealing with um i would say <clears throat> teams less than 100 people that has a huge difference yeah. it's not worth the 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 even just a few months of an impact You've heard me speak many times, Paul. You know, we've worked with the, the culture at MAP, uh, and I've said it many times sat here before in the MAP room, that, you know, the, the one single deciding difference between those businesses that I've been involved with that have been successes or those that have not been as successful has absolutely come down to culture. Uh, and when we had Leanne in, uh, you know, Leanne's worked with us. We've uh, we've used Leanne's uh, business oblong to help with our own culture in MAP. But I was really interested in how she was talking about the challenge of bringing culture into the conversation at a board level. Which is why I think it's so important now that um, that businesses start to, to bring people and culture into the conversation at a board level because it does feed into operations. It does, does yes. feed into marketing and sales. It does feed into um, branding and communications. It's all one of the same. So I think if organisations are struggling with this and wondering where to start, my advice would be just try and do even just yourself a little audit just kind of what are my values, how am I treating my customers, how am I treating my employees? And I think the key thing metric to look at if your customer retention is through the roof, like you get a customer and you hold on to that customer for the rest of time, but your turnover rate is really high, yeah. then there's probably something not not mm. right there. But the good news is you know how to engage people yes. in a product. Yes. And it's the same process of engaging people in your workplace. Yes. So you know what to do. You know the methodology. We just need to start expanding that into people and culture. Yeah. Just to add to that, later in the episode, Leanne talks about this thing about engagement. So people obviously often have on the agenda recruitment and retention, but it's actually engagement is the leading indicator before retention, if you like. That was a, a bit that really stood out to me. And you almost scratch your head to think, how could you not be talking about that at a board level? When we all say our biggest challenge, our biggest problems all come from people, all come from culture, how can culture not be on the board level? Uh, on the board agenda and specifically engagement because when you're talking about retention it's almost too late the engagement is the leading indicators of the churn risks retention is your outcome isn't it absolutely yeah and then interestingly amanda in the episode that we did with her she actually talks about that and about retention as a metric and this was really fascinating what she had to say I mean, I guess I think sort of the first KPI that we look at in terms of the culture is our staff retention. So that is incredibly important. I think it's important not only to us as a business, because as we know, it has been a challenging hiring yeah. environment, although admittedly, probably in the last six months, we feel that's eased a bit. Um, on our side, we, we get, I get a lot of candidates sent to me from um, from recruiters all the time now, which which didn't happen for two years. But I think that's a really big um, KPI for us because it's a big KPI for our clients. And they have established relationships with people. You know, we've got people that have been working on their accounts for three, four years. They know them inside out. And to bring someone new onto that account, I mean, it's great because you get the fresh ideas and, and everything along that lines. But we don't have is that history. And I think clients can be reluctant to have too much of a change mm. or too many different people. You know, they're, they're sort of asking questions like, why, why have I got so many different mm. account managers or, or what's happened here? So that, I think, for us and our clients is a really, really big KPI. However, I would like to challenge this slightly to say that it is a bit of a double-edged sword because retention is obviously key. And one of the biggest 
headaches we have to grapple with regularly is having to explain to client that there's going to be a change in personnel, a change in account manager, particularly as Amanda said there, clients don't like it. You know, initially it is seen as negative news, even though you might be doing it with, you'll always be doing it really a positive intention unless somebody's left unexpectedly. Um, but the, the, the challenge with having it as a, as a KPI is if you're trying to hit a KPI, you might end up hanging on to the wrong people. And so it's taking that with a pinch of salt, really, and making sure that you're... And it's the same with any KPI, really, is it? it's there as a gauge and a measure and a, a discussion. You can't get obsessed over it at the compromise of other areas of your business. So if you've got people that shouldn't be in your business any, anymore, God forbid you're not holding on to them just to hit a, a retention KPI. And that's why if you look at it in conjunction with things like engagement, then you, you get more full picture, I think. I think one thing that I always try to say to people on that poll with KPIs is, um, you know, the eye is an indicator. It's all it is. It is only what does this give us as a barometer. It's not a pass or fail. It's not an absolute. It's not a non-negotiable. It is simply an indicator. And yes, I think there are times when uh, people, and I've said on the podcast before, as the accountants in the room, very often we're the ones obsessed with uh, KPIs because it gives a, it gives a, 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 you know, a picture of where somebody is. Um, but it is always worth just um, reflecting on that element. So as we start to link this into the next part of the journey about scaling, Daniel talks about demand and supply, which again, I think is something that we all learn at a very early stage in our academic career, if you like, but maybe it's a good reminder to, to think about how that shows up, particularly as a business is scaling, because in that desert piece, Often the majority of your problems are people focused and you spend so much time keeping people happy, trying to get people to come and work with your business, stay engaged and, and stay with your business. But at the same time, as a leader, you have a responsibility to your customers, you have a responsibility for your strategy and your marketing. And it's important to continue to reflect on that demand and supply tension because the thing that you did when you started, your proposition and the way that you serve customers, that might not be as in demand today that might not be as fashionable today so this is about iterating sometimes your strategy your proposition and your marketing the same way that you iterate the culture piece that we talked about before well the good tension is demand and supply tension um so if you have you know it's very it's very simple if you could be the only place that sells cold beer on a hot summer's day at the football right you're going to go home with a big profit um, so demand and supply tension when there's lots of people who want something and not many of those things mm. available, that is the, essentially that's the fundamental driver of profitability. Mm. Um, and people forget this fundamental driver, you know, they think that it's service or it's good reputation, you yeah. know, that it's, you know, all of those things. It's just demand and supply tension. Um, airlines can deliver an amazing level of service and they do an incredible thing. They fly you through the air, um, and they're not very profitable. Uh, and then Rolex does a very boring thing. It manufactures a piece of technology that was well over 100 years yeah. old. Um, it does it in a pretty normal way. Uh, and yet it has an 18-month waiting list. Rolex yeah. is terrible for customer service or any yeah. of those sorts of things. But they're super profitable because there's demand and supply tension. So the good good type of tension is, is demand and supply tension. The next good type of tension is a deep understanding of what makes your customers tick. Every single customer buys to resolve tension. Uh, so the only reason someone buys something is they experience some form of tension between their current reality and their desired reality. Yep. Um, and you, you know, very, very smart businesses understand that tension. Um, as far as bad tension, it's the tension of selling time for money and you know running out of time every day mm. and not having enough time um where you've sold you've sold yourself at a price that's too cheap you've sold in you know you're selling something that's annoying and repetitive for you to do um and you've got the tension between where you'd like to be and where you are i'd probably like to use that to maybe link to something else that uh, was said which was you've said there in your journey and with the map journey, there's been the the tension of the changing teams and maybe the mismatched expectations of sometimes the employee and sometimes the client. 
one of the things that again Amanda Wall spoke really well about was the cost of that to your business uh, and I think that's definitely worth a reflection yeah, absolutely. And when we do the initial calls, so basically when we have our new business process and we have that initial kind of half an hour call with the clients, we have very uh, clear questions as to what we want to cover. But I think what I would add to that as well is that the the hidden cost of getting the wrong client is very substantial. And we've had situations, you know, over the last few years, as I'm sure all agencies have, where I've had a staff member kind of come in off a call, very upset, um, sort of notably upset. Maybe a client has been quite aggressive or we've taken on the wrong kind of client. Um, you know, the expectations haven't been met, but the expectations maybe weren't the right expectations to start off with. I've got to then spend time, you know, with that client kind of con- with the uh, staff member consoling them, rebuilding their confidence. You know, that there's, there's that whole element of it. Yeah. And then if that staff member did decide to leave, you know, after a period of time, the cost of that is very high to train someone new. And it's kind of like all of that for the sake of a client that we maybe shouldn't have taken on in the first place, like the cost is is very high. Yeah. And I think often when you're at pitch and you're, you've got a retainer kind of waved in front of you, sometimes it's easy to be blind to that. Of course it is. But I think once you've experienced the impact that that can have on staff or staff members, and I've seen it here and I've seen it at previous work as well, you realise it's just not worth it. Um, and I think that that, but it, it also takes a lot of courage at times to say that, to actually say, no, I'm not going to go ahead mm. with that because I understand that the wider impact and the wider costs of that are are more. Mm. A definite example of iterating and, and evolving as a business, I think. So again, the startup phase, a lot of it is almost begging, you know, please come and work with us. Please believe my tiny little startup business that we can deliver to your expectations and the things that you want so we call it discovery call amanda's talking there about dealing with a lead effectively someone who's shown an interest in working with your business and that evolves as you get bigger to almost the shoes on the other foot a little bit more as more of a balanced conversation which is they're sussing you out but you're also sussing them out because at this point you've got more battle scars you've had more successes and more failures you're clear on your ideal client profile because i don't think you can be clear on day one because you've not worked with anyone yet through your new business and so that filtering bit that amanda talks about is becomes more and more important the bigger that y- you get because you don't want a bad egg whether it's an employee or a client to come in and and, and disrupt um the, the progress that you're already making so you use that discovery phase to to check that there's an alignment um on expectations i think and on that theme of saying no that is for me, one of the most important parts of strategy. People talk about strategy and vision like it's this big, exciting, opportunistic thing and all the amazing things that you're going to achieve. But you you, you challenge me on this all, all the time, Stuart, and, and challenge other businesses on this. A massive part of strategy is what you say no to. It's creating those boundaries that we're going to work within. And I see a huge relief from business owners when you take decisive action to say, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be in that territory or in that service sector or hire those type of people or deliver those services. And I, I feel that that weight off the shoulders, as I said before, your battleground is really important. Make it as easy as possible. And a lot of that comes from being clear about the things that you're not going to do. What I keep fresh in my mind is that strategy by definition, it's not what you do, it's what you don't do. Yeah. So saying no to things and just going, no, no, that's not, we're not that, we're not that, we're not that with this. And I think that just provides then clarity for not only the type of people and business, well, the other businesses and clients you're going to attract, but also the type of people you're going to attract into the agency as well. So I think this concept of being more thorough about the things that you say no to, a lot of it comes from other people challenging you. So I've really enjoyed as we've got bigger and I've got smart, experienced people around me reflecting back to me on what the ideal client profile is not just my view from somebody at arm's length but the people are actually on the ground saying we've recognized that these characteristics are important for a good client and we want to avoid these things for a bad client and so having that challenge from your team also advisors so you know the right advisors who can ask you the questions that maybe you're not asking yourself and to help you to identify your blind spots and maybe the things that you're not thinking about or the things that you've said you're going to do but maybe you've slipped back into bad habits and also i'd say that i've been i think really lucky over the years that 
I've had numerous people that that have been there and done it before. People like yourself that has taken time out to speak to me when I've asked questions, and my questions have usually been quite pointed, and I'm trying to get an answer on something. Um, but I, I'm very grateful that people like yourself have given me time and gone, well, actually, you know, what about X, Y, and Z, or have you thought about this, this, and this? And not that they've necessarily given me the answer, um, but but uh, that's played a big part in in us getting to where we are, and me as an individual as well. So I think if we um, accept the fact that we have uh, had the business, took the choice to say it's a lifestyle business, if that's what we want, or we're going for the, as Daniel calls, performance business, the scale-up stage, then if we take the logic of um, whether we've crossed the desert or not, we get to the ultimate point that lots and lots of people talk to us about, and it does seem to be, I'm going to say, um, an abnormally high percentage of conversations and that is this thing about exit and i've said this before where i think it's it's the thing that spoke about the most and maybe the thing that's misunderstood the most so i think as we sort of close this um program it would be great to come back to maybe where we started and in our first episode we had uh, sam and landy talk about he just gone through the exit of his business and um that episode was called you know becoming an employee again after 20 years which was you know, well worth listening because there's lots of other things he talks about. But one of the real questions that I enjoyed was saying, you know, what are the key considerations that need to be taken into account before committing to a sale process? Because that opens, in many cases, a can of worms or lots of other work that needs to be done. Timing, I guess, was 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 absolutely a key one. You know, we we as I said before, we built out this plan, which was three years, get us to twenty twenty four, get get a business to what we thought was going to be a value, then go out to market, then then seek that 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 opportunity. Um, so the timing of it um, worked for me because I'm not getting any younger. So I think I think that was sort of um, very important. Um, but again, I think I've mentioned it before that that fit so that it, it worked for everybody the whole everybody that's involved in access i think that was um a, a very very important piece to us um i think knowing that we slotted in to a network not network we're not a network we're a group the fact that we slotted into to a group um in in a really good space was really important mm. to us as well you know what we we didn't want to be just another agency that made up the numbers. We didn't want to be a me too. We wanted to sit in a in a in a in our own space within a network that could offer us the value that these different agencies offer us. So again that's about understanding in advance what do we need to think about and again in that episode we said you know if you took your time back would you do things differently again and I think we've all everyone who's been through this process would say they'd probably do something differently again. Um but the one thing that always surprises me is, and as you said earlier, Paul, it might be about reading it in books. It might be about seeing what other people have done. Um, it's going back a little bit to what John Woodall said is the value of actually taking the time, learning the experience and, and living it, which was until you go through this process, you can read as many books as you like, but you've got no real understanding of what the tsunami that's coming, that's coming your way. I think it's an understatement <laughs> that this process is difficult. Oh, my goodness. Um, everybody tells you. Everybody says due diligence. Watch out for the due diligence. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a nightmare. You, you're going to not sleep. You're going to um, meet yourself coming backwards. And it's all absolutely true. It, it, it was so, so tough. Um, and and in spite of some great advice, some great support, some great teamwork, um, it was it, it was it was very very difficult. I genuinely thought we were in a good sh we were in good shape. I definitely I don't genuinely thought we were in good shape. I thought we we had good records. I thought our our, our projections were clear. I uh, you know I, I thought we had we had what people would need to to buy an agency of, of our of, of our sort of um, size and scale um and i think that that whole process just i mean it could be easier we could make it easier i also think the advisors could make it easier as well um and i think the other way the other main area we weren't prepared was um day 1 of having exited having sold it it, it it is just really, really weird. 
Yeah, always a, a really key thing to get right, a really difficult thing to get right, I think is genuinely being prepared for a sale opportunity and the extra pressure, lack of preparation, if you like, that Simon admits to there is because this was a, a left-of-field opportunity. Mm-hmm. He he got approaches for that business before he was ready and, and early in his plan. And it's a really difficult one, this, for I think, for business owners to take seriously, particularly if they've never sold a business before because they're not necessarily sure what they need to prepare and they're not sure when they need to prepare for it. And we therefore label it as governance as opposed to exit planning sometimes. A lot of the things that go into exit planning are also just good good governance for a business and they're important for two reasons. One, because you never know when that opportunity might come, so be ready. But two, because there's a reason that those buyers want that information, like it's they're signs of a good business. So all the things, we just took one of those examples from Simon. He talks about having every customer contract available to you. It's amazing how many businesses have got assumptions and the business owner misunderstands what's been, what terms have been signed for a customer because yeah. they were signed five years ago and they think they, they were this. And then you open it up and it's like, oh, actually, that's outdated now. It's changed. We're overexposed. And that's what a buyer's looking for. Have you got contracts that are not watertight? So guess what? As a business, whether you're looking to exit or just improve and develop, these things matter. And that's why we label it as governance. But we were fortunate to get a conversation with John Davidge, who is a solicitor, and he went more practically into some of these areas because a lot of the things that you need to do to prepare for an exit fall under, as um, Simon talks about it as admin, but legal governance and financial governance. And here's what he had to say. Um, I think the knowing your contractual side, um, you know, because companies go through reorganisations. We were we were a partnership, then we were an LLP, then we we're a limited company. So it's tracking that and tracking where the contracts are because they can be they can be historic names. That's an area. Um, you know, also, you know, we we as lawyers have, have got very decent debt management systems and all that sort of stuff. But if you're a business that deals with work in progress because you yep. record time, yep. all of that needs to be looked at. Lots um, of pro- lots of agencies by project basis of that, aren't they? Because they yep. are, they may have a. Let's just say they're working on a long web build. Yeah. And you know they've you've, they've got they've agreed potentially some. I'd love it if they agree deposits, but not all do. But yeah. deposits and then some kind of payment scheme. But it's how do you reconcile that spend while you're doing it, isn't it? And that concept of work in progress yeah. is your, key. Your income recognition policy yeah. is key. And that needs to be reflective in your historic accounts. Because when you go through a process, they will say to you, right, we will we will um, determine your final equity value mm. of your business by your, your old policies. So you mm. need to demonstrate that that's what you've actually done. Now, if you've got a client that you ha- you, you know how you have outstanding whip for six months or twelve months, yep. and then they pay you, that's your historic process. Mm. You know, some buyers might come in and say, "Well, we only have whip for three months, and we collect debts within mm. thirty days." Your business might be very different, mm. but it's all those things that that you need to be prepared for. Mm. That you know, once you get the financial due diligence questionnaire and they start digging, mm. it's quite a shock um, to do that. So that that that. That's an area that we looked at, um, you know, and, and it pays dividends to be prepared. And mm. unfortunately, we always have been prepared, so yes. it wasn't that yes. much of an issue. Yes. But, you know, I wasn't the financial partner, but I was mm. involved in that, and it was a real eye-opener mm. to see how that, that's actually done mm. in practice. And that's eye-opening in itself. I think the fact that John, as a legal professional, having been through the process himself, he was surprised about how much work was involved. So if you've not got that governance in place... You know, as Simon said, it's almost too painful to bear at times. Um, so having that governance in place is, is is an absolute minimum. Often when you go through a sales process, the buyer's looking to go back something like three years. They want 36 months of evidence of the things that you've told them. And if that doesn't stack up, then alarm bells start ringing because at the end of the day, they're looking for a business that's to a degree self-sufficient. They don't want a weak business that they're having to come in and be there the white knight saving it all. They want to see that you've got this governance in place. So take some of the things that John talked about there. If your work in progress days are longer than would be ideal, which means you're waiting longer to get paid for the work that you've done, then be honest about that. Don't trample the wool over anybody's eyes because they want to 
stack up what you're saying against what the evidence shows. So you've got to make sure that the evidence is there. And it's really important, again, get out of sales mode in this situation. Don't try and sell how good things are and how good your finances are. I've seen businesses saying, oh, yeah, we produce management accounts every month or we have an FD involved in this business. That's not the same as saying that you've got watertight financial information to share with a, a buyer. I still see multi-million pound businesses that don't produce a balance sheet for their accounts, for their management accounts meeting. They're covering the things that they think are important operationally for their business. They're not necessarily looking at it through the same rigor as a buyer would. So there's a lot of work that goes into that kind of month-end information and there's a reason that it's there. Not all of it you will recognize straight away, but they're the things that a buyer are going to ask for later in the journey. I think one thing I would interject with there, Paul, which I've I've seen myself uh, in a recent process is, you know, one of the things that we do is try to make, when we talk about financial maturity, it's not about um, definitely, you know, necessarily being the best, being the most understanding. It's about using it as you need it for your business. And one of the things that you know, attracted me when I first became a client of MAP is the concept of the truncated P&L. So we only report on the things that you need to look at. You don't need to worry about, you know, did the aircon cost this necessarily, et cetera, et cetera. You get my point there. However, then when somebody asks the more complex question, it's, well, where do you go for that information? And I was fascinated recently where, you know, I'd probably taken it for granted, but the fact that a client I was working with, when asked questions about specifically this one was um, working capital um, requirements, that we could go back and show because of the information, the three years, with more than three years, I mean, in that particular client, it's six years, but we could show these management accounts that had the depth of information, the fact that you had never presented them in that format at multi board meeting because it wasn't it wasn't necessary. I think was quite inspiring, quite surprising for that client at the time because it allowed that answer to be answered when they had no idea where to look. And that's what I mean about withstanding that pressure. You know, have you got the information available behind the scenes to be able to withstand that scrutiny? And my key piece of advice here would be: you use the word "take it for granted." There, don't take for granted. You know, each month when you're having your monthly management accounts presented to you. Try and think of a different question and not just the questions that you've got about, as I say, the business operating here and now, but asking questions that you've learned are probably going to be asked during a due diligence process and go through a, a journey. I often say to our clients, I'm not going to teach you how to be an accountant, but I am going to help you to understand your business better. And so make sure you are asking those difficult questions and don't take it for given that the information that you're producing can withstand the rigors of a due diligence process. I think probably then that's worth coming back to um, something else that I've mentioned working capital there. John spoke about working capital and how that can actually sometimes destroy a process, but it can at least cost you a lot more money if you're in that process. Yeah, well, it, it is always generally the financial and tax side of it. Generally, because the, if there's a debt funder, and particularly the way uh, the economy is going at the moment, due diligence, financial due diligence is going to run the transaction. So generally, that's always done first. You generally want to get probably 80% of the financial due diligence done before legals are instructed. Um, and that's where the barriers come because um, the, the concept of working capital and how you calculate that in some businesses isn't really understood. Yeah. Um, and how a buyer and a seller would look at that is very different. So if you can't demonstrate to a buyer or a bank what your, what is called normalised working capital, which is essentially your, your, your debts that are outstanding less your creditors are outstanding. That's simplistically what it is. If you can't calculate that from your figures on a monthly basis over a year, then it causes real frustration for a buyer. And the level of sophistication from the private equity funds, from the larger buyers, compared to high growth businesses is very, very different mm-hmm. what they're expecting. So that's where I've uh, I've seen the frustration so much so that, you know, some of the, the larger accounts have just reported to the buyer saying, we, we can't tell you what the working capital is because... The method of reporting internally isn't sufficient. The, the systems aren't correct. Um, to unravel this is going to take some time and, and the deal can go off. 
So there we have it. I think we've founded and sold a business in this last hour, Stuart, <laughs> through through that review. And I hope everybody else found that as, as interesting as I did. Um, we sort of used Daniel's methodology of the entrepreneur's journey as a as a way of taking us through this. Um, and hopefully everybody found something of value in it. And uh, that brings us to the end of series one um, all of a sudden. And, and here we are, Stuart, ready to start planning series two. So first of all, pleased to say that we are signed up and committed to a second series we are thank you to all of the amazing work that you've put in and continue to put in um give the listeners a bit of a, a flavor as to what we can expect from this next series is it going to be much of the same or is it going to be different uh i think probably it's important that it's different um I'm, I'm, you know as you say we when you look back and you do reflect i think we did achieve the ambitions that we set out we wanted to bring the right guests in we wanted to bring the relevant stories in and i think when we reflect on the way we've done it there and put it if you like, as you've said there, almost as if it was just one business. It definitely tells a valuable story. I think really, if you look at where we finished, what I want to do next year is be a little bit more practical about where we support that client. So as a map client, this is where we can help you. So it's okay us talking about, um, you know, you, let's just say we talk about governance, but I think what we want to do going forward is actually talk about this is what it really looks like. Here's a real example. Here's a case study. I spoke to many clients and the thing that they're crying out for is a constant case studies. So in my head going forward, we'll probably have, you know, 50% will be guests with the stories and 50% will be ourselves and others talking about the actual practical steps that were taken by us and that client to get to a certain point in time. I think we need to go to that next level now about um, execution. We spoke about, you know, whilst it was not theorists, the theory of this and what others have done, I think next year is more about somebody coming in and going, okay, if I'm at that point, how can I get the help I need? And go back to maybe to Adam's point, the difference between what I want and what I need. And I think that should be uh, where we'll start from. Brilliant. Like you say, this is effectively making it happen now. We've used the first series to develop a, a bit of knowledge, hopefully, with all the, the people that have listened, educate you, if that's the right word, you know, without being too patronising in, in maybe some of the, the territory that you've not yet stepped into. So you've got a different mindset about some of these areas. And then series two we'll use to start getting a little bit more practical and helping you to actually take some action off the back of it. So all that remains is to say thank you. Thanks again uh, for all the team at Audio Always who support us through this process. Uh, to every guest we've had, for every listener who's come in, for every returning listener, even better. We've been blown away by some of the stats that we've seen. Um, so I'm Stuart Brown, and you've been listening to myself and Paul Barnes. Thank you, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. The Map Room has been brought to you by Map, the outsourced finance function for digital agencies. Subscribe via your usual podcast app to never miss an episode.